most knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 405. Jason Lingard is with me and David Matheson. This will be a very interesting episode for me. David's got all kind of myth, religious, and sky clock ideas. And everybody knows me. I am all about people who logically look at the sky clock now. I often state that this is not the information age. It's the age of deception, but it is also the age of discovery. If you think about it logically, anyhow, welcome Jason. Cool. Hey, this is David. <laughs> Great to meet you guys, Crow and Jason. And thanks so much for having me on. Perfect. I think Jason was actually muted out there for a second. Are you with us, Jason? <laughs> I was, I left my mute on. Good yeah, morning. That, that's what I thought. <laughs> anyhow, welcome everybody. Mute, not mute. Let's just jump right into it. I think what we're going to do is you have a lot of ideas in uh, brief bullet points. So I think if you don't mind, David, we'll just kind of follow the bullet points through and branch off as we will. And I hope people have an open mind about these things. I am, as I said, all about people who are logically looking at the sky clock. Lucas was another member of Crow Triple Seven Radio, who had a very unique view, which I appreciated greatly on uh, ideas about the zodiac, about time. But let's just jump in. Jason, you want to just cue along with the brief bullet points? Yeah, I appreciate. Uh, you know, I've never done a, uh, I've done a lot of podcasts. I've never done one where I've sent in the bullet points and I like this idea. So, um, but feel free also to diverge. I'm sure, you know, you guys have done this for a long time and know what you're doing, but if you feel like an answer takes us in a different direction, that would be interesting. I'm quite flexible to go in whatever direction you want to talk about. Perfect. That's generally how it works. If we get into interesting ideas, we can leave the bullet points behind. The main idea behind bullet points is Jason and I don't know what we don't know that you're thinking. So what it does is it just gives us an indicator of what what you were considering uh, as you got ready to come on the show. But anyhow, are you ready to go, Jason? All right. So we're going to start with ancient myth worldwide is based on the stars and heavenly cycles. When we met David, this is, uh, we talked briefly and I knew I wanted to have him on. Um, so many people miss the point, particularly people that have been raised Christian. They don't realize that there's connection to the sky clock in almost anything that is what we would consider old. Go ahead, David. Great. Thanks. Well, when I say ancient myth worldwide is based on the stars and heavenly cycles, like you said, this is a bit of a revolutionary idea. And I'll tell you, I didn't set out to assert this. I, this is not something that I was yearning to put out to the world. Actually, I was taking the Bible very literally. I was, I was not raised in a particularly strict Christian household, but we did go to church kind of occasionally. But I was actually in the army when I was younger, <laughs> and I didn't immediately get right into literalist Christianity, but I did just as a result of some things that I was going through in my personal life. And the army has chaplains in every single unit. I was in a battalion of the 82nd Airborne at the time, and I became a very kind of devoted literalist Christian to the point that I would only read either the Bible or biblical literature on Sundays, which is what's known as a Sabbatarian. Like I wouldn't watch NFL because it played on the Sunday. So anyway, when I say that ancient myth worldwide is based on the stars and heavenly cycles, sometimes people kind of nod and say, oh, that's interesting. 
you know, it sounds kind of cool, but what exactly are you saying? What I'm saying is all of the figures, like, you know, the characters in the stories and the events in the stories can be shown to be based on specific constellations, parts of the sky, not always a constellation, like the Milky Way is a big one that plays a, a role. It's not really a constellation. The Hyades is not a constellation. The Pleiades is not a constellation. So I say, you know, stars, constellations, planets, and heavenly cycles. So the cycle of the year being a very big one, which is the sun going through the zodiac, background stars. The cycle of the moon is important in some ways, the cycle of other planets. But really, that cycle of the year is a really big one. And then the cycle of precession is also involved. But when I say that characters are based on the stars, I mean like Moses. I can show you the constellation that's Moses, and I can show you crossing the Red Sea. Or there are specific events in the book of the Revelation that were some of the ones that I saw first that are very clearly based on the stars. And then it's not just the stories of the Bible. This actually connects the stories of the Bible to the myths of ancient Greece ancient Egypt, ancient Mesopotamia. And you would say, well, you know, those are all kind of close to the same region of the Mediterranean or Near East, what, what's called the Near East. But this is also the Norse myths. And even more incredibly, the myths and sacred stories of the nations of North America are using the same system. The Maya stories that are recorded in the Popol Vuh of Central America, like where we have today, Guatemala and, and some of those countries today, based on the same system. The stories of the Pacific Ocean cultures of Polynesia, like from Hawaii and what we call New Zealand and Australia, which is one of the most ancient cultures of the world. The people there were thought to be separated for tens of thousands of years from other parts of the world, they were basically in isolation. Their stories seem to have the same patterns going on. Africa, the different nations and cultures of Africa, Asia, India, ancient India, you know, Crow, you've mentioned how old, you know, the civilizations of India, the Vedas, very ancient, the Sanskrit texts like Mahabharata, those characters in the Mahabharata, which is really well known in India, like they have movies about Mahabharata to this day. So people in India really know all the different characters like Bhim and Arjun and the god Krishna and this giant battle of Kurukshetra, which is kind of like the Iliad, you know, Trojan War, but even bigger. Those stories can be shown to be based on the stars and constellations. So I'll just stop there, but that's what I'm talking about. So let's let's address that for a minute. I slowly over years began to introduce, you know, I did early work on the sky clock, but I began to introduce the ideas that you're expressing here. The first thing that happened, uh, Jason and I did episodes on some old myth. Some PhDs emailed me and said, Crow, you need to put down your mic. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. The Iliad and the Odyssey have nothing to do with the sky, what you call the sky clock. And I just basically said, contraire, my friend. When they tell you that this hero died and a certain kind of flower grew, first of all, they're indicating the time of year. And that is the most low level connection that we could make now. But all as we get into this, David, I'll point out where I am at now. These older 
traditions, let's just call them legends, myth, religions, uh, were created in a time when people actually had spiritual vision. I currently accept that as we came into the age of hypermaterialism, about the 15th or six, what we call the 15th or 16th seventh, uh, century. So in, in the neighborhood of the Renaissance, uh, we began to become material and lose our spiritual vision. And the reason this is important, because what you're about to lay down, if I am correct, it was put together by people who could literally see the hierarchies of spiritual influence above us. But there's the queue up. Do you want to just keep pushing through the points until we get to a point? Didn't those lettered people, papered people, also try and tell you that the myths were not aspects of nature as well? Yeah, that was the same thing. When I was trying to introduce a way for people who'd been raised Christian and other types of religions that are very strict, like we only read the King James certain year, you know, 1611, uh, I was trying to introduce a new way to think about it. And that's when I began to replace the idea of gods and goddesses with aspects of nature. But as David can tell you, if I say aspects of nature, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the sky clock, right? I mean, that's what nature is. It's a cycle. We're in some portion of a cycle. And, you know, you mentioned something, David, about procession. Um, For my part, I want to get your point of view on this. I don't accept procession happens in the way they claim it happens. I accept that it is real and that it is just simply how the sky clock moves. Um, we're not spinning like a top that's wobbling or got knocked off its axis somehow. I think the procession, which is provably there, is built in to how the sky clock cycles. Yeah. So procession is a, is a super interesting and important subject. I'll, uh, I'll just step back for a second. I'll dive into that. Some of those great points that you just said in a second, but I'll say that I kind of hinted in the first answer that I was taking the Bible literally, which I was, and there was a book called Hamlet's Mill, which is all about procession. The mill is the grinding out of the ages. It's a poetic way of talking about procession. That's why they named their book Hamlet's Mill. And the reason Hamlet's in there is the Hamlet story where a good king is killed by an evil king. This is what has happened at the beginning of Shakespeare's Hamlet, but Shakespeare, of course, is drawing on myths. There was a character that's called Amlethus, and it goes back even further in history. But in Hamlet, the good king has been killed by an evil, usurping bad king, and Hamlet's the son of the good king, and he's not quite positive whether, he's pretty sure (laughs) the ghost of his father has showed up, but he's not sure if the ghost is real or not anyway. He's pretty sure that the uncle has killed his father and has now married his wife. And what is he going to do? And that's the whole play of Hamlet. He's like, what should I do here? Should I step up? Should I, what should I do? They point out that that's the exact same pattern as in ancient Egypt, Osiris, the god Osiris being murdered by his brother Set and 72 henchmen. This is where they start going off on the point of 72. That is a number that relates to procession, which I'll get to in a second. But anyway, it's the exact same pattern. Horus is the son of Osiris. And with the help of Isis, the consort of Osiris and the mother of Horus, they bring Osiris back. Anyway, it's the exact same pattern of the evil brother set in this case, killing Osiris. And in today, you know, long after Hamlet's Mill was written in 1969, viewers might be familiar with the story of the Lion King from Disney, where the good King Lion 
has been killed by this evil brother, Scar. And then the son, I think it's Simba, wanders around in the wilderness going, what should I do? And I'm going to dance around with this warthog and sing Hakuna Matata. And then he finally kind of grows into a full-grown lion and goes back and challenges his uncle Scar. Anyway, it's the exact same pattern as Hamlet. It's over and over. And what the authors of Hamlet's mill, so I stumbled across that book as a result of actually giving a present to my mother of a book by Graham Hancock and saying, hmm, this Graham Hancock guy is really interesting. And I started reading some of his other stuff about ancient civilizations. My parents were going to Machu Picchu. That's why I got this book to give to my mom. And Graham Hancock mentions Hamlet's Mill. So I was like, this is fascinating. All this stuff about stars and myths. And when I read Hamlet's Mill, they talk about procession being encoded in myths around the world, with especially with these processional numbers like Set and his 72 henchmen, or in the Norse myths, Ragnarok, they count, they, the Norse myths, the, the Edda, the poetic Edda, the older one, actually gives a number for all the heroes of Valhalla that are going to come to the aid of the gods, Odin and the others, on the day of Ragnarok. And it turns out to be a processional number, which they show. But processional numbers are baked into the pyramids of Egypt, the ratios of the actual measurements of Egypt, but also in Mexico, the pyramids that are there have processional numbers all over the place. So it's very important in the myths. Oh, in the the Vedas as well, they'll often have the number 108, which is another processional number. So what is it? Just so our listeners are clear on, because people throw around this word procession and it sounds cool to say it. And it's an awe-inspiring thing once you understand it, but it is People don't even often, because we never get taught this stuff, as I'm sure, you, I'm sure you've probably railed on this point before, but you can go through four years of college and then four years of grad school and get a PhD. It's funny that you've had PhDs contact you. I've never had any PhDs contact me. I've tried to contact them and say, look at all this information and evidence that I found. And the they won't look. Yeah. Crickets. Yeah. But uh, you can go through all kinds of school and never learn a constellation or a procession outline the procession a little bit and I'll point out how pervasive this is. Like, you know, the little prayer beads, some people call them malas, uh, 108 beads. There's all these things. So just for an overview, so people get it, we're talking about ages, right? That's what procession represents. And maybe in a time with spiritual vision, uh, you would understand that in this era, we're doing these things. And the next era, we'll be stepping up to do these kinds of things. But more than anything, it gives you an accurate view backwards and it gives you an accurate projection forward. But how would you define procession for people who are unfamiliar? Yeah, great. It's also, you know, if you watch the beginning of Bull Durham, the movie, which came out in the 80s, and I remember really liking it at the time, although I haven't watched it in decades, I'm pretty sure at the very beginning, like the very first kind of intro monologue by uh, by the main actress. She says, there's 108 stitches in a baseball and 108 beads on a Catholic rosary. And there you go. Um, anyway, procession means, the easiest way that I describe it is the slippage of the background stars from their expected point year to year. So just to explain, you mentioned that we're not spinning like a top. So i believe that we are on a globe that is rotating on its axis. Well, you you got to stick with however you figure it. You got to stick with what you're doing. Exactly. We got to describe what's going on in the heavens. So that's right. 
And by the way, in the light of Egypt, just so everybody knows, it says, I think in two points, that the model they're laying down doesn't matter whether you're on a plane or a globe. They say this over and over at least two times that I'm aware of in the opening, but go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I, I Like I say, what I'm discovering works whether you believe we're on a flat earth, a hollow earth, but it's describing what's going on in the sky. The model that you use to explain what you're seeing in the sky, we can debate about. It's not my real area of focus, but anyway, the slippage well, define it. If I think, what is it? 72, year, 72 years is a degree or something like that? Yeah, correct. It's it's one degree and uh, the current rate is said to be around 71.6 years, which we round up to, as you said, exactly 72 years. Because to put it into a myth, it's easier to have 72 henchmen helping Seth rather than 71.6. But look, whatever model you want to use, the stars move across the sky throughout the day and throughout the year. I believe it's because we're rotating that you can see them moving through the through the day, but you, you could argue a different way. I don't care. And then also throughout the year. So if you stay up all night and just watch the stars, you'll see Orion, like right now, time of year, we're, we're at the end of March. What is it? March 26th today. Orion is pretty far across the sky when the sun goes down. Earlier in the year, Orion was just at the horizon when the sun was going down. Later in the year, Orion will be almost to the western edge of the sky, almost the western horizon when the sun comes up. I said going down. I meant when the sun comes up. No, going down. Sorry. When the sun goes down and and the stars come out, Orion will later in the year be almost all the way to the west. So if you stay up all night, you can watch Orion go across the sky. He'll start in the east and move to the west, just like the sun does. But also throughout the year, each night that you go out, Orion will be a little bit farther along on that track. You can watch him do the track in one night, but also each night as you go out, he'll be a little further to the west until eventually, at a certain time in the summer in the northern hemisphere, Orion won't be above the horizon at all when the sun goes down and Scorpio will be up in the east. So as we go throughout the year, the whole heavenly scene changes. But if you get right back to the exact same day, they'll be in, quote unquote, the exact same place to the naked eye from one year to the other, meaning like the equinox is a handy reference because we know, first of all, the calendar slips around a little bit because it doesn't match exactly. But the equinoxes, we know we're back in the exact same relationship to the sun or you know, however you want to describe this the exact same relationship to the sun and the earth, the spring equinox in March that we just went through not too long ago. (laughs) I know we can discuss that too, but when we get back to that exact same relationship where the sun is exactly on this point of the horizon, again, the stars will be in the same places, except for this one degree slippage over 72 years. That's one degree on the same day, not one degree a night, not one degree a week, one degree in 72 years. Like, yeah, when you come back to the exact same point, the sun will have a background of stars of, let's say, Pisces on the spring equinox. Right now, it's in between Pisces and Aquarius. That's where we're arguing about when does the age of Aquarius start. But let's say the sun is in, quote unquote, in Pisces, or the background of stars is Pisces, when you get back to that same day each year, spring equinox, whatever day that you want to measure it, but if you can measure the exact same point of the sun, 
and it's right in the same background stars on the same day of the spring equinox or the summer solstice or whichever specific day that you choose, it will actually be in that same, it, like the, the sky moves throughout the year, but it gets back to, oh, look, it's in Pisces again. And what happens is the background of stars gets delayed from its normal positioning such that eventually the sun after 72 years will uh, after 2160 years sorry so if it if it's delayed by one degree a year how many degrees in a circle 360 so if you've got if you divide the sky up with a zodiac of 12 and we can talk about the 13th later if you want but if you divide the sky into 12, 360 divided by 12 is 30 degrees per constellation. So if it's getting delayed one degree every 72 years, we'll just round up from 71.6, then 30 degrees, a whole constellation is going to take you 2,160 years of delay. But that means the sun will rise with a background of stars of the preceding, that's why it's called precession, constellation, which is Aquarius comes before Pisces in the Zodiac and in the year's annual cycle and in the march across the sky. So backwards, like if you watch the Zodiac spin, backwards. the precession is going backwards from that direction. It's getting dragged in. It's like the sky is getting held back by some gigantic, massive hand that's holding it very slightly, dragging it so that it doesn't get back to its appointed place on the appointed day by one degree only in 72 years. And one degree is tiny. It's like less than your width of your finger when you hold it out. It's two full moons. So if you put two full moons in the sky, full moon is about a half a degree. And I've got a whole story about how that's changed. The point is two full moons side by side would be about a degree roughly. Yeah. So, so let's, so it, let's say that you're very precise and you start off measuring the, you've got to be, you know, you got to have your chin like right in the exact same point every year. And you got to be looking right, right down the exact same direction. That's why they had these standing stones and all these other architectural alignments. So you look in the exact same place and you're like, okay, there's that star. And when I get back to this exact same day on the equinox again, there's that star again. If you do that for 72 whole years, which I guess you must start when you're five, you know, if the human lifespan is like, you know, 78, 80, whatever, you got to, you got to watch for like 72 years, taking very good records to even see one degree of slippage. So this requires like good records or good vision, like you said, but anyway, it's tiny. Just so you know, a degree, if you held your thumb at arm's length, it would be covering roughly a degree of sky. It's a tiny piece of sky. So this is, this is a very um, subtle slippage, but after 2,160 years, the slippage is so evident that we've slipped an entire zodiac constellation's amount of degrees. And so therefore, we're now in a, a different age. That's why they call them the ages. Like the sun was rising in the background of stars of Taurus at one point in the distant past. But then this slippage, this drag caused the sun to rise in the, age, in the constellation of Aries, which comes before Taurus. And then we had, quote, the age of Aries, and this drag kept going. And then Pisces, which comes before Aries, the sun would rise in that for another 2,160 years. And we're now at the basically the debatable borderline in between the constellations of Pisces and Aquarius. And that's what this whole song about the age of Aquarius is all about. Anyway, 
there's procession. It's very subtle. I also don't believe that it has to do with a wobble. I've got some different solar system models, but like I said, I don't really care which one you use because the myths can be shown to be using the stars above how we explain what they're doing, debate all you want. But the, what I, what I am quite confident in proclaiming is that this motion of procession is in the ancient myths, including the Odyssey. Like you said, Odyssey and Iliad can clearly be seen to have all kinds of star connections and Odyssey especially has procession in it and processional numbers and processional themes. Even the story, even the story, David, because if what you consider is the heroic age of the Greeks is ending and the gods are telling the survivors of the fall of Troy to go found the new age, which will be Rome. So it's even written into the surface story narrative that a new age is coming, that there's a big change up. But there's a couple things I'd like to point out. Whenever we talk about whether it's flat, whether it's hollow, you know, people like to fly. But here's the deal, man. Go read The Light of Egypt. That guy, Burgoyne, who wrote that knew damn well that he couldn't say the model that he wanted to say. And so what he pointed out was it doesn't matter whether you're using a plane, a stationary plane, or a globe. What I'm saying here will appear observably, observably the same way. Here's the point I would make. First of all, you were talking about 2,160 years as one sign of the Zodiac, I would urge everybody to go read The Worship of Augustus Caesar by Del Mar. He lays down some pretty jolting things where he claims that that span of a zodiacal time is a throwback to when we only had 10 signs and that we carried it forward forward erroneously. And he has some very interesting points. Secondarily, if you want to consider why the model that I choose to accept that we're stationary on a, on a plane, on a realm, uh, that is well outlined in the reason for caring whether it matters or not, because what I just told you was it doesn't matter. You could be standing on a globe and making observations can be no different uh, for these astrological things. And some of the best people that we know of said this very thing, and it was pretty clear they weren't allowed to say what they wanted to say otherwise. Um, the point I'm making, the whole reason it matters is because In a spinning everything model like NASA has shown us, there is no up. And with no up, there is no spiritual ascendance. And that's the simplest I can put it to anyone. You can go read Light of Egypt. You can go read Steiner. And what they will say is there was a time when human beings living here had spiritual vision, literally. Another way of saying that is like the Bible, the three gospels that are synoptic. They're seeing with one eye. That is an allusion to spiritual vision, the single eye, which sees more than both your other eyes put together. They will tell you that there are spiritual realms from here to the moon is one called angels. And I've outlined these before. The point is that if there's a spiritual hierarchy, then there has to be a path through them. My statement here is that if you don't have up, then that becomes a stumbling block. But anyhow, back to you, David, I just wanted to put these things in because I know the minute we do these things, people will start arguing. Yeah. And I, you know, I get, uh, I get comments on my YouTube videos all the time that say, Hey, great video, but don't you know that the earth is flat? And I'm like, I don't even reply anymore. Well, that's, that's the whole point though. This is our job, right? This is the age of deception, but it is the age of discovery. It's our job to help each other, to offer ideas, to take opposing points of view and bring them together to hopefully better the outcome of two opposing views. This used to be the whole purpose for having debates in school. You take this side, I'll take this side. You make the best point you can and we'll declare who did a better job. 
And if someone did a better job, then maybe we should consider that point of view. Um, these are the things. And I think it's critically important. And by the way, the one th- before I hand it back to you, here's the one thing that changed it all for me. When I put out the lunar wave video, within 30 days, the Flat Earth Society exploded. And of course, everyone used the lunar wave to back the model they wanted to point at. The point I'm making is I didn't know what to do. I didn't have any reference point. I couldn't figure out a way, you know, how, how can I figure out what's correct here? I've been spinning on a globe my whole life. Here's what I did. This is what started the change for everything before I went out with my camera and shot over 10 miles. Go outside, clear your mind, shut your eyes, and imagine everything NASA told you is true. You're on a spinning ball. Um, it's spinning around the sun. All that is spinning. You get out to a galaxy. All that is spinning. And look up look up the speeds so you can imagine it the way it's being demonstrated. You're spinning faster than the speed of sound on the axis. And just sit there and say, that's where I am. In your mind's eye with your eyes closed. That's where I'm standing. That's what's going on underneath me and around me. Go inside, have a coffee, have a tea. Half an hour later, come out, do the same thing. Clear your mind, shut your eyes, and then imagine you were on a stationary plane. And for me, that's where it all started, which is what led me to go out and do the camera work to see if I could see too far. Anyhow, we've been pulled way off, but let's just jump into the next point where you're stating that individual figures and events and storylines line up directly with constellations, stars, planets, what we call planets. Yeah. Great. And it, you know what? It's an important, I don't mean to dismiss it as a very, very important. And look, if, if we're being deceived about it, which it's quite clear that NASA deceives and lies and, you know, I'm, I'm in total agreement with that. It doesn't necessarily lead to, you know, we could, we could debate, but um, why are they doing that? You know, it's because it's important, you know, you don't put together a big giant deception if it's just you know just for fun it's there's a very important ramifications of all of this i could actually i hate to interrupt you again but i'll add something steiner and rudolf steiner they did it because they were going to block the spiritual growth there is no up there is no hierarchy there is no path to travel when reincarnation gets introduced all the old indian yogis would scream from the rooftops that it's preventing people from dying and going where they should. But Steiner wrote a thing, and I think 1909, they'll blow your damn mind. He said they are currently developing an inoculation that when given will completely block the want or need for a human being to have a spiritual life. They will completely give up any concerns of spirituality and they will become materially driven. Steiner wrote that in 1909. So if what I have told you is close to the truth and the easy way to describe it is there's no up in that system. In other words, you don't know where to travel. When you leave here, you bring a fallacious model and that gets you trapped, which is what some of them are claiming. I I can't prove any of this. All I can do is logically work out and read as much as I can. But I think that's an important thing. Steiner claimed in 1909, there was an inoculation coming that would stifle spiritual life in human beings. Yeah, that's remarkable. And, you know, I, at the risk of, you know, I want to get to that next point, but I think this is great. And I want to, I want to reply to this Steiner because I think it's, I think it's fantastic because, you know, people have heard me talk about this on all different podcasts, but what you and Jason bring is your perspectives, your history, your experiences, and your views that you've arrived at by your journey that, um, 
brings out something different than all I've talked about on any other, you know, people can go hear other podcasts, but they can't hear me interacting with you on any other podcast. So Steiner, it's really interesting that, you know, when we talked earlier, you mentioned Steiner and then by quote unquote coincidence or synchronicity this very week, I had a call with some friends of mine. I mentioned him to you, Simon Shack, who your uh, listeners would probably be really interested in checking out. He has written, he made a video called September Clues, which is about September 11th and arguing that there's, I mean, he, he goes so far as to say, uh, you know, it was a complete hoax with um, fake buildings and things. Now, uh, you know, watch his video. I'm not getting into that, but he also <laughs> investigated the heavens. He's originally Swedish and Norwegian, which I'm part Norwegian. And um, he investigated the heavens and the model of Tycho Brahe is how we generally say it in English. And he was a Danish, amazing observer of the heavens who taught Kepler. And Kepler is responsible for this model that we all use today. Kepler was his student. And when Tycho, it's really pronounced like more like Tugge Brahe in uh, Danish, I think. I've listened to some Danish people say it and try to imitate it. But Tycho Brahe had a different model and he had a stationary Earth model because the movements of Mars and the sun baffled astronomers. And back then, and Simon Schack, I just happened to have this, um, not argument, but conversation with him. And there's a computer programmer named Patrick Holmquist who has put together um, a computer planetarium showing this model and it all checks out and works. So I had a, had a great conversation Brahe's, with him. Brahe's yeah, well, the model. So they've they've updated Brahe's model a little bit, but they um, they have a brand new book out. It's all free on the internet. You can read the whole book with all these arguments about this Brahe, the the updated version of the Brahe model. They call it the Tycho's model. And like I said, I'm kind of agnostic to which model you want to use. I believe it's very important, but I'm not. My my area is talking about the myth, so I don't get wrapped around the axle. But actually in this conversation, Simon said, it's so sad that today people can't even debate this. It, like it gets into, oh, you're talking about us not going around the sun. You must be the devil. You know, like you must be ignorant. I can't even talk to you. Like, it's like a spell was cast, you know? Yeah. It's like an emotional insult to them that you say, well, it's possible that the sun is going around the earth and a binary companion. Have you ever considered that? Anyway, in this brand new book, it's at book.tycos.space. I'll just spell it out because people can go read the whole book. It's online for free. The updated brand new version, book, obviously, B-O-O-K, and then a dot. Tycos is spelled T-Y-C-H-O-S dot space, uh, S-P-A-C-E, book.tycos.space. And in the preface, he's got a quotation from Rudolf Steiner. So I'm like, oh my goodness, Crow was just mentioning Steiner. Here's what Steiner says. He says, now today we have a very remarkable fact, my dear friends. This is a quote from 1921 from his third scientific lecture course in astronomy uh, in Stuttgart in January 2nd of 1921. We have a very remarkable fact, my dear friends. This is Steiner talking. This Copernican system, when employed purely mathematically, supplies the necessary calculations concerning the observed phenomena as well as and no better than any of the earlier ones, the eclipses of the sun and the moon can be calculated with the ancient Chaldean system, with the Egyptian, with the Tychonian, and with the Copernican. 
the outer occurrences in the heavens, insofar as they relate to mechanics or mathematics, can thus be foretold. One system is as well-suited as another. It is only that the simplest thought pictures arise with the Copernican system. So he says the Copernican, you know, sun in the middle, everyone going around the sun. It gives you a nice, easy picture for everyone to imagine. But the strange thing is, this is Steiner still, direct quote, that in practical astronomy, calculations are not made with the Copernican system. Curiously enough, in practical astronomy, to obtain what is needed for the calendar, the system of Tycho Brahe is used. This shows how little that is really fundamental, how little of the essential nature of things comes into question when the universe is thus pictured in purely mathematical curves or in terms of mechanical forces. So Steiner, obviously amazing. That's a big statement. And there's another thing. Steiner brings up Copernicus a lot. And he points out in the first Copernican book that was published when Copernicus was supposedly on his deathbed, it said, this is purely theoretical science ideas. Um, It said right in the thing, but I was not aware. I had not read the quote where Brahe uh, was used to do the calculation back then, but didn't Brahe die in a suspicious way too? Very suspicious way, Crow. Bing, bell going off. He died at the age of 55. And if you read the Wikipedia entry, which as we know, Wikipedia flat out lies about everything. Look up their Hamlet's Mill entry and they like poo-poo it. And I think that's like the one place on Wikipedia that they have a link to my stuff and they make fun of me too or whatever. But um, anyway, Wikipedia, if you look at how Tycho Brahe died, you'll just laugh because no one could die that way. It says he, he loved to party. He was a very interesting, eccentric dude, but he had like the most amazing observatory in Europe. Biggest scope too at the time, I believe. Yeah, huge scope. Like his his records have never been matched how, how good they are. And Kepler in 1988, as they point out in this book, as Simon Schack points out in his research, in 1988, modern scholars found evidence that Kepler had to fudge his data for Mars because Mars does something that's so inexplicable in its patterns that Kepler Kepler called it his war on Mars because he was trying to figure out how the hell do I explain Mars? And eventually he couldn't explain it. So he just faked the data. And that's been established in 1988. There was even a New York Times article about the guy who wrote the book showing that Kepler was a liar. Well, there's also been a book that's been written to show that Kepler may have poisoned Brahe. In fact, I believe they dug up Brahe and did a hair sample. And they said, you know, from this hair sample, we can tell that he was poisoned slowly over a long period of time. But if you read the Wikipedia entry, it'll say this dude liked to party. He had a pet elk, like, you know, the size of a moose. And um, one night he was drinking and partying it up. And he didn't want to excuse himself to go to the bathroom because, you know, he had to take a piss. So he just held it until his bladder exploded nope. and he died of, <laughs> of, of poison. Like, okay, man. And, and Kepler's still like the hero of everybody with all this common knowledge out front. Yeah. And we still use the Kepler model. And it's like Kepler took all of the notes of Brahe and then all of a sudden the Kepler system got accepted. So I don't think Kepler was acting alone because all of a sudden his system became like, now you can't even question it. You question it, you're a lunatic. Yeah, it was 
backed by the church, the stuff that came forward, even after they fake arrested people and fake took their books off the shelf um, within a hundred years of them saying, this is, you know, the earth is the center uh, and they were jailing people within a hundred years. The reverse of that was true, but I can solve the Mars problem if you're interested. Yeah, well, uh, I'm happy to hear it. I don't I don't need to stay on this topic any longer than you want to, because like I said, it's not my area of expertise. All I'll say is that the Tycos model also gives a very satisfactory explanation. I've even made a video about it because it does, it does, it, look, this hinges on my, my area of uh, focus obviously hinges on how do you explain what's going on in the heavens too. So I'm interested in it. Go for it. Well, it's Steiner. There's a couple versions of it, but um, some of the Steiner work, he takes the time to name the spiritual hierarchies. And what it does is it gives you a key for words in the Bible. Like whenever you see the word angel or archangel or powers or mites or thrones or dominions, um, these keywords can then be translated to mean something about the heavenly hierarchies. And it's the same way with all the art from the Vatican. You know, if you're seeing an angel in the art, or if you're seeing a seraphim or a cherubim, uh, it can relate. And that's what Steiner did. One of the things that Steiner did that still messed me up is he said, we got Venus and Mercury backwards. And when you first hear it, you're all, come on, you know, is it that bad? And then you begin to realize that it makes way more sense for what we call Venus to be Mercury. But here's here's how it's laid down outside the early Rosicrucian systems and the other, I forget what they're called, the, the Holy Grail, Secret Society, whatever it is. Um, it would go like this. Earth is at the center of everything I'm about to mention. From the Earth to the Moon, from the Moon to what we call Venus, which is actually Mercury from Mercury to what we call Mercury, which is actually Venus to the sun. All right. All that earth is in the center. That would be referred to as the first interval would be angels, then archangels, then archai, then around the sun, that spiritual realm of influence referred to in powers. And this is how it was written a long time ago. So what it's doing is giving you a key to maybe older writings. Now, beyond that, the next thing should be Mars, but where earth was just the center now draw one big, what we would call an orbit around everything I just said. And that's what Mars is going around called the mites, then the dominions, which would be Jupiter, then the thrones, which would be Saturn, then the cherubim and seraphim. And beyond that is the God, uh, which permeates everything that I've mentioned. But that second set, starting with Mars, the sun becomes central. So it's both in, in, the, uh, in the model that I laid down, which was supported by societies that weren't allowed to say anything about it until the last third of the 1800s. Last third of the 1800s is when all the, the goods gets start to get spilled. But anyhow, there's all that. <laughs> no, that's super, super interesting, Crow. And like I, you know, I mentioned when we, when we just briefly spoke, you should definitely check out Simon Shack um, in, in the Tycos model, or, you know, if you're interested, because he posits based on what Tycho Brahe was was finding with all his very accurate and very, you know, years long that the sun and Mars are in a binary dance outside of the earth. There you go. So it's not that the earth is, they, he doesn't argue that the earth is stationary. He argues that actually the earth makes a small, it's stuck in a berry center of a binary system and kind of like in the, like the backwash of these two other bodies that are doing a dance, which is sun and Mars. And that's what causes precession in, in the Tycho's model. The earth making a very slow, smaller circle in the center. 
but um, but while while also spinning on its axis. But anyway, the system that you just laid out does have some parallels to what Simon is arguing in the Tycho's model that explains very well that the Mars synodic cycle, when it meets up with either the sun or other planets, will follow a very strange pattern of somewhere in the vicinity of over 700 days each time. But then every eighth time, it has a funny 400 synodic cycle. And you can't really explain it with the Copernican Keplerian model. It really doesn't work. Mars is an odd duck. Yeah. Even for just a telescope user, Mars is an odd duck. It's like, supposedly it's much closer to us than Jupiter. Almost any night of the week, I can get great focus on Jupiter. Almost no night of the week can I get great focus on Mars. And they'll say, oh, well, it's a sandstorm or some other nonsense. Mars is weird, just to let everyone know. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's great. I think it's great to talk about these things. I'm happy to go right back to the um, track that we were on. And just, you know, now we've pointed some interesting things for people to research on their own. I'll lead us back in. So basically we were going in a direction, but up around your eighth bullet point, you're pointing out that all these religions, these myths, these ancient tales, which are tied lock, stock and barrel to the sky clock, and therefore lock, stock and barrel with historical eons or ages of being both past what their present was and what would come in the future. They operate on multiple levels, whereas planets... Uh, stars, the human body metaphor all connects to, I guess, what we'll call astrology for the sake of this conversation. Well, I, yeah, I, when I said connects to astrology, I mean, like you're, you're saying, um, you know, the planets have influences on us or their positions have influence on us. So you can interpret or you can get lessons or messages from these myths on many different levels. You can say, oh, you know, the human body has its own associations and connections with the movements of the heavens. Traditional Chinese medicine talks about, you know, the different organs of your body being connected. This one's connected more to Jupiter influence. This one's connected more to uh, Mars influence, for example. And so therefore you want to take, you know, uh, a medicine for your stomach at this particular hour or a medicine for your liver at this particular hour. Well, those systems didn't just evolve because of superstition the positions of the heavens do have an impact on us. You can, you you know, the angle of the light in the fall, the autumn has a different feel to you than the angle of the light in the summer. And everyone, you know, obviously it impacts nature. It impacts us. We feel like going to sleep at a certain time when the heavens are in a certain position. So it's operating on many, many levels is what I'm saying. And, and it's really intriguing your earlier comment. And I guess, it came from Steiner that the ancients had this vision, this spiritual vision. When I say that the Bible is based on the stars, it is not saying that the Bible is not quote unquote true. I'm saying it's not literal, but it is full of profound truth on multiple levels that has a tremendous positive things to teach us in our life today, even in this very modern moment of time that we're all talking and thinking in critical things, levels and levels of meaning. These are deeper levels of meaning, not just the surface narrative. I agree with you. Yeah. So I focus on one particular aspect more than others in recent years having to do with what I call suppression of self. You can see that the myths are talking about this. In fact, there's some very blatant places where they come right out and say it on, uh, almost come up right out and say it. Suppression of self and recovery of self 
And so, and I, I just bring that up to your point of, we have to have an up in order to ascend. That could be the way I'm thinking about it. That could be a metaphor, like re bringing up you're, you're suppressing yourself and pushing it down. We say pushing it down. It doesn't necessarily, you know, self doesn't necessarily go in a down direction when we suppress it, but we suppress it. We suppress it so much that when people mention to us that we might've suppressed our own authentic higher self, we get defensive about it. Like we even suppress the knowledge that we've done that. It doesn't necessarily need to be in a physically down direction or a physically coming back up direction, but those are very helpful terms for understanding, reconnecting with your higher self. Well, is it higher? Is it lower? Is it deeper? You could call it my deeper self. Words have meaning, I would point out. Okay. Yeah. But but what I'm saying is I believe they are using this and I know belief, you know, I've can come to the conclusion at this point that they are using a very sophisticated system of metaphor to teach us profound things that we need to know. And one of those profound things has to do with our division from who we are. That's just one layer of what they're talking about because they're talking about many, many layers. I agree. And we're coming up on an hour here. So I've got to wrap up for hour one. You know what, Jason? Do fortune talking about crow. How does he do it? He goes, my young crow. How does he do it? You can do it. My young crow, I'm going to point out a thing. (laughs) Everyone knows how fortune St. Germain speaks. Now, (laughs) some of what David is telling you is so critically important because people like fortune who still hold on to the older ways will tell you that once upon a time, medicine was 100% backed by spiritual ideas to the point where I have watched the man cure things that are supposed to be incurable. And one of the things he'll do is say, you've got to vibrate. That's Bajiric. The world works on vibration, young crow. <laughs> you know, it says all these things, but he's doing things at a level that I have previously been unfamiliar with. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because David's absolutely right. These are critical things that we temporarily lost sight of. And from my point of view, it's because we were busy following surface narratives. We were getting moral stories and we had lost however many levels of meaning there were there. And here we are getting back to it. But David, can you tell people where they can find you online? Uh, and if you wish, you can give out an email address. This is our one. You could be bombed with emails if, if you do that. <laughs> Thanks. Well, you know, I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to get this information out to those who are looking for it. Some people just aren't looking for it and that's fine. Uh, you know, but um, I have a very extensive website, which does have a contact button at the bottom that'll send you to my email. Um, the website is, I call it star myths of the world, but the URL is just star myth star myth world. And I always say, if you forget that you can just search for like Matheson stars in any search thing. And it'll probably, uh, one of the result, results will get you to star myth It's got old videos. It's got, um, a contact button. Like if you scroll down to the very bottom of each page, there's different menus, but at the very bottom, there's a menu at the bottom that's got a link to contact and a link to resources, like links to resources by, um, like you can find the Iliad online and it'll link to that. It's got links to podcasts that I've been on some, but not all of them. Some are not on the air anymore. It's got links to courses that I have online courses at what I call the undying stars Academy. That's fairly new. I've got three courses up there. It's got links to tons of free material up 
giant blog that's been going since 2011, I think, uh, that's totally searchable. So you can go on there and search for Mars or search for Tycho's and see stuff. Um, so yeah, and also on Instagram is Star Myth World uh, on Instagram at Star Myth World. So thanks. All right, there it is. Uh, so I'm going to wrap up hour one of episode 405. You can find hour two for members at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Um, there's a lot we could get into. We've barely even dented the bullets. We pretty much jumped hither and yon uh, in the first hour. We'll see where we go in hour two with regard to the sky clock. There it is, man. I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.